So today I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 because we're going to read quite a lot from Luke 22 and then uh, we're going to uh, even jump into 23. So we're going to cover the whole passion. That's a, a phrase we use to describe the week of Christ's suffering for our sake. The passion is a phrase that means the week of his suffering for our sake. And as we read through scripture, I'll stop periodically to share a few thoughts with you and hopefully help you prepare for a very sacred, special, holy week. So if you want to follow along with me, you'll find those passages in your uh, Bibles on the tables there, uh, starting on page 1048, 1048. And uh, if you have a Bible in some other format, this would be a good way to follow as well. First thing I want to say to you before I start is that we've done now the entire Lenten season, we've been doing something called the Red Letter Challenge. That was our Lenten preparation. Lent is a season of preparation. That's what the word means. So our preparation has been 40 days of reading the red ink in our Bible. That is the words of Jesus, okay? And the words of Jesus had five themes that we really drew out of that experience. Now, many of you participated in small groups and in personal study of the Red Letter Challenge, and I'm just really delighted with your enthusiastic response to it. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how, what a rich experience it was because the Red Letter Challenge book not only brought you into the words of Jesus, but also challenged you to do things that you maybe haven't done as a part of your discipleship journey. And so it really got you moving. In many cases, I heard some terrific stories of how this Red Letter Challenge kind of made you go deeper with Christ. And the whole focus of the Red Letter Challenge was to focus on the things that Jesus says. But now the focus of Holy Week, the focus of the passion is on what Jesus does. And we want to focus on what he does because many of us can find a way to do what he says, but he's the only one who can do what he has done. And that's what the purpose of this special week of recognition is all about. There's only one person ever who could do what Jesus has done and we need to zero in on that in order to understand why we worship him not only as our savior, but as our king. Why we seek his kingdom and desire to be with him for all eternity and look forward to the day of resurrection when he reigns over all things temporal and cosmic. That's the idea. And that's what we're going to lean into this morning with our scripture reading. So I want to start in chapter two of Luke. I'm going to start up here at verse seven. And so you can follow along with me. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell him the master, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he went uh, and he will show you a large upper room finished, furnished and prepare it there. 
And they went and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he gave thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Hold there for a minute and consider what we've read so far. They came together to celebrate the Passover. Jesus said, I'm looking forward to this. This was a special Passover to Jesus. He celebrated the Passover all of his life as a part of his Jewish tradition, as a part of his upbringing. They'd celebrated the Passover many, many times, but he said, I'm really, really looking forward to this one. I've been waiting for this day. Now that's a clue right there about what he does next and why it's so significant. Now remember that the Passover was the annual celebration of the Jews commemorating the way that God delivered them from a just punishment they had coming. You got to remember that to really appreciate what's going on here. You remember that when the Hebrews were slaves of Egypt, and Moses had come to free them from their bondage under God's authority, that there were plagues, nine plagues to be specific, all targeted at the gods of Egypt. And in each of those nine plagues, Goshen, the land where the Hebrews lived, was spared, whatever that wrath was. Now, it's vitally important that we understand, as we talked about in the Red Letter Challenge, that the Hebrew people were not only slaves to uh, servitude under the thumb of the oppressive Egyptians, but they were slaves to Egyptian ways. They had given themselves over to the cultures and customs of Egypt, and they stood apart in a way, but they weren't really acting like they were God's chosen people. They simply did not want to be readily identified with their oppressors. And that's okay because the oppressors didn't want to readily identify them either. But as often happens, we have more in common with the people that we think we're different from than we would admit. And so here they find themselves confronted with God's authority over all the gods of Egypt. And they have to recognize that this one God of theirs is supreme. 
And the one God that he hasn't taken on yet is the one who is oppressing them, the one that's pushing down with the thumb on them, trying to hold them in this false system of belief, trying to hold them in servitude to the Egyptians. This, this Pharaoh whose, whose head probably fit in that weird hat that he wore, but that's a discussion for another day. And this is God's moment to declare that God, Yahweh, the one and only God, the one true God, the supreme creator of everything is absolutely in charge of everything and has ultimate authority over even Pharaoh, even the one that Pharaoh probably embodied in a manner of speaking, we would call Satan. And so this is a showdown. And the people in this 10th plague, they got to decide whether they're going to follow the culture they've been living in, or whether they're going to embrace something radically new and different. Something they hadn't really seen in a long, long time. Their generations before them may or may not recall, but these people really have no point of reference. And then they are told, this last judgment will fall upon you just the same as it does all the Egyptians, because this God does hold against you. This one you are guilty of. You are guilty of believing that Pharaoh is more powerful than I am. You are guilty of serving Pharaoh. You're guilty of serving the enemy of God. And so God tells them, but I'm gonna give you a break because you are my chosen people, because of my covenant with Abraham, I'm going to give you a break. And so God says to them, if you kill the sacrificial lamb and you consume it, and then you spread its blood on the doorposts of your homes, my wrath will pass you by. And that is a judgment you deserve, but because of the blood of the lamb, you will be forgiven. All the world saw the death of the firstborn that night. All of creation saw the death of the firstborn that night, except for those whose spare, who were spared by the blood of the lamb. That's what Passover is, and this is what Jesus was so eager to celebrate in a particular way on this occasion we just read about. And so I bring it to you full circle now. Jesus, on the occasion of the celebration of the Passover, says, this one's different, guys. There's never going to be another Passover like this one, and there's never been a Passover like this before either. And so he says to them, in effect, I am the Passover lamb. My body, broken for you, consumed by you. And in this case, he doesn't mean it literally, but he's saying when you eat this bread, you should think of it as my body because in the same way that you consume the sacrificial lamb, put the blood on the doorposts of your home, I ask you to consume who I am, to embrace me as the heart and soul of who you are. You know what happens when you eat something? It's taken into the depths of your body and then dispersed as energy and life-giving force throughout all of your extremities and your brain and your lungs and everything that you are that breathes life in you. That's what happens when you consume food for your body. And so he asks you to do that. And then he says, and then my blood shed will be the blood that passes, that causes the Passover of wrath. We're never not guilty. We're only forgiven. We're all guilty before God 
all our sin is the same in God's eyes, whether it's publicly or privately expressed, whether it's the kind we all consider bad or the kind that only God considers bad, it all separates us from God. And Jesus said, by my blood shed for you, God's wrath will pass over you. And so he becomes the last sacrifice. He's introducing a new covenant that replaces the old covenant. And this will become very clear to us as we read further along in scripture because it will ultimately rend the curtain in the temple, which is a sign that God no longer has a curtain separating God's glory from us. This is what Jesus is alluding to in this thing we call the Last Supper. This is a new covenant that he's been eager to celebrate because while he came to teach and prove himself and to demonstrate God's great love, the ultimate purpose of his being among us is for this, to be the Paschal Lamb, the sacrifice that ends all sacrifice, the one through whom we all receive redemption and freedom from the consequence of sin and we get life eternal in the presence of God. This is why he was so eager. Let's go back now. Chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That's an interesting response to their debate about who might be the one that's going to betray him. Can you hear this breaking out? I'm sorry for the digression, but... I, this stuff's also real in my head. I hope it is in yours. I think, okay, so Jesus just said, one of you guys is going to betray me, and none of them knows for sure whether it's them or not. So then they start debating about which one it couldn't be. Well, it couldn't be me. I'm one of the greatest among Jesus' followers. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. One guy there knows it's him. The rest think that it might be them. And so their only defense against the possibility that it's them is to get really proud about how it couldn't be them. Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not with you, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is making it really clear that everything's backward from the world in the kingdom of Christ. And to be great in his kingdom is to be a servant for his sake, because that's exactly what he came to do. Not just to serve us. Don't be so proud as to think he did this for us. He did this for love of his father, who loves us so much that he won't give up on us. And Jesus says, you know, dad, for your sake, I'll do whatever it takes to save them. Humility is the hallmark of a true Christian believer because it's the hallmark of our master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus went on to say, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demand to have you, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to both prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times and deny that you know me. Humility. It was pride that led Peter to say that. And Jesus said, your pride has to be broken. And then you'll come back to me. Do you hear how he said that Satan was going to sift you, but then you would come back to me? <laughs> you know, it's like Satan, he saw the potential in Peter. And we owe a lot to Peter. But the only way Peter could live up to his potential was to be broken down to his knees in total surrender. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has a sword has no sword, sell his cloak to buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, this is a strange passage. And this is a little hard to understand, but keep in context with what you've read already. Jesus has told them exactly how things are going to go down and how living under the new covenant is going to play out. And it starts with the strongest among their number being tested and driven to his knees in humility before he can be all that his potential has in store. And so Jesus is saying to them, I protected you and took care of you on that first missionary journey, but now you're going in faith. Now you're going to suffer if that's what the re necessary requirement is. In other words, and we see we have the benefit of Christian history to look back on over 2000 years to know what he's driving at here. Nobody who ever really glorified Christ did it in a way that brought glory to themselves. And in fact, some of the greatest glory that Christ ever got from Christians was martyrdom. You've got to understand that Jesus is asking you to sell out your life for him. What does this mean? It doesn't always mean you're going to die, literally, at the hands of enemies of God. But what it does mean is, is that if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to give up everything. And it's that mere willingness of spirit that makes you able to really embrace the sanctification that he has in store for you. This passage is strange when you think about it in the context that it's being st uh, stated, but what he's really driving at in the larger sense is that we are all on a journey of sanctification. Now, in the next weeks and months, this church is gonna do a lot of discernment about this sanctification, and what does that mean? We're going to be doing a lot of talking and thinking about whether or not we want to align ourselves with traditional values that embrace holiness of heart and mind or whether we want to embrace a more humanist culture. These are the kind of things we'll be talking about. Remember what you heard Jesus say in these last several weeks. Remember what Jesus says about sanctification. It will cost you.
You will not be able to do everything you want. You will not be able to find justification in every human interpretation of scripture. You'll have to take Jesus at his word. And this is what he said. Go out prepared to do battle with the enemy. And the enemy is the one who is behind violence and pride, chaos and oppression. There's where the enemy is visible. Let's keep reading. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I have always entertained the idea that at Gethsemane, Jesus's sacrificial offering began, that it wasn't just on the cross, but it started in Gethsemane. The first time I stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, I became more certain than ever because you can feel it. I don't know that everybody can have that experience, but those who have been to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's like when you're in Israel, there are lots of things that they point at and say, this is the place where Jesus said this, this is the place where Jesus did that. And, you know, it depends on how imaginative you are, I guess. But, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the same Mount of Olives, there's something of an energy there that is undeniable. That you just have to take my word for, any of the others who have been there. But here's what I really want you to take away from what we've just read. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat blood. In the other gospel account, Jesus cries out to his friends three times, guys, where are you? I need you. Jesus cries out three times to his father, please take this cup of sorrow away from me. And in this moment, you begin to realize what's going on if you pay attention. Jesus is now lonely for the first time in his entire existence, and he is the eternal son of God. He is God. And he's lonely. He calls out to his friends because he feels separated from God the Father. What would separate him from God the Father? Sin. You know, there's only one other person who really understands what it's like to have been able to walk with God the Father in the cool of the evening, side by side, experiencing an intimate connection with the Creator, and then had it taken away from him. You know who that was? Adam. Jesus is described as the, the new Adam or the second Adam. And what is he doing right now? He is taking upon himself the burden of our sin. He is taking something from us 
that we didn't know was such a burden and we didn't know how badly we needed it taken away. He has taken something upon himself that he doesn't deserve ever. He is paying the price for what separates us from God by being separated from God through no fault of his own. What's going on is, is that for the sake of our being able to return to Eden, to return to the presence of God the Father as it was in the beginning, as it will be in the end, he's taking upon himself the thing that is for us and for him inconceivable. No wonder he cries out on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He cannot comprehend it. He is the all-powerful, almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one person, except in this moment that begins in the garden, when because of our sin, he isn't. Think about that this week. No wonder he sweat blood. There's science, there's preachers today probably quoting science articles and everything else, talking about what happens to cause people to sweat blood. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you it's really bad. It's a real thing, and it happens under extreme stress. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I think about that scene. Now, this, this may not, you may not have all read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you may have seen the movie, though. But I think about that scene where Aslan, who's Jesus, or a representation of Jesus, Aslan the lion is willingly going to this sacrificial place so that the winter witch and all this crazy horde of bizarre creatures just cackle with delight while he suffers. Submitting his will to them. And, and I picture this in my mind's eye because as I've grown in my spiritual life and my knowledge of scripture and things of the spirit, it's become so clear to me that there is this evil horde of bizarre and horrible beings that just lurks outside of our perception looking for souls to devour, looking for a place to launch evil and chaos and violence Ask me how I could say such a bizarre thing and I'd just challenge you to watch a 24-hour news channel or YouTube or something. Wherever there is chaos, wherever there is violence, whether it is violence of the body and the flesh or violence of speech, wherever there is violence and chaos and oppression, there is Satan and all the twisted, bizarre creatures that serve him. 
And among the crowd around Jesus forming for this next series of readings are not only evil people with deluded minds and misguided intentions, there's also evil. There's chaos, there's violence, and there's evil. We have power over sin and death through Jesus Christ, but we have to intentionally regret and reject evil, violent speech. When's the last time you said something hateful about somebody you didn't really know? Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with them. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. Sifted and sorted, humiliated so that he can be built up in a new image. No one comes to the Lord Jesus Christ to be his servant and for Christ to be your savior and king without first denying themselves. You have to be broken and submit, submissive and contrite before you can be born again. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept saying, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Evil, violence, chaos, oppression. When day came, the assembly of the elders, the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, they hid Uh, They led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. (laughs) But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe it. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This trial was illegal. It was a sham. It was conducted clandestinely in the middle of the night. It was not the way you dealt with a good citizen. It was the way you dealt with somebody when you're full of violence and evil and oppression and you just want to silence somebody that doesn't agree with you. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. 
And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, and he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but made no answer. But Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, and then arrayed him in a splendid cloth and sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Jesus doesn't even honor this kind of violence and evil with a reply, and neither should we. There will be times you can be sure because of the choices you make, the decisions you make, because of your allegiance to Christ and the gospel of the kingdom, you will be mocked. Now, there will be those with honest questions who will ask for honest answers. And like Jesus, you can be straightforward and brief. But recognize that sometimes people are just mean. And they're just evil. And they're working for somebody who is God's enemy. And you can hear it in their voice. You can recognize it in their demeanor. And Jesus himself teaches by example that the best response is no response. Do not honor it with a reply. Put that one in your hip pocket and save it. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man who as one as one who was misleading the people. And after examining it before you, behold, I do not find a man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man and release Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection that he started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Evil, chaos, violence, injustice. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, 
the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that they never, that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus clearly in this final hour of his life, these final moments of his life, these final hours, clearly is alluding to what he said on the Mount of Olives to the apostles about the destruction of Jerusalem, which we talked about a few weeks ago. He warned them again that Jerusalem would suffer because of this lack of faith and this lack of obedience, this complete and utter violent contempt for the Son of God. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that was called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I wanna stop right there and tell you that if you don't do anything else, become a Christian so that when you die, you can be with him in paradise. I think you can have a much better life than that if you'll live in the spirit and work out your sanctification with the Lord's help. But if I don't know anything else about what happens after we die, I know this, what Jesus said to that man right there. If you die in my favor, you'll be with me in paradise. Whatever Jesus calls paradise is good enough for me. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There it is. The the temple curtain is torn. This curtain was probably a foot and a half to two feet thick. No one went beyond that curtain except for the high priest and only on very special occasions. And even then, they tied a rope to his ankle in case he died in there in the glory of God and needed to be reeled out. Okay? The temple curtain is rent in two, meaning there is no separation now. Why? Because of what's happening in this moment that we're reading about. And Jesus calling out to the Lord in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this was an innocent man. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, 
when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and all the women who had followed from him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The other gospels tell us that phenomenal and unusual and, and downright terrifying natural things occurred, earthquakes, shaking and darkness and lightning and thunder as if God in heaven cried out at this moment. Now there was a man named Joseph from the, Jew, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in the tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women had, who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, but it was the Sabbath, so they rested according to the commandment. I will close with this. The Son of God, the very life and light of God, drained of his life's blood for our sake, is now a corpse being laid in a tomb. And here's how they used those tombs in those days. And you still see those tombs now. They still exist. And what they did is they laid the person who had just died in one of these tombs like Lazarus was on that day that Jesus raised him from the dead. And they would leave them in there for two, three years until rot and decay had run its course. Then they would remove the bones and put them in a smaller box called an ossuary and bury that. And then the tomb would be used again for the same purpose. This is where Jesus was placed. Because it was the Sabbath, because they were running out of time, they just threw some flowers in there with him and some linens and tried to show him appropriate respect. They would come back after the Sabbath to finish the proper anointing procedures, which were all designed to sort of lessen the odor and burden of decay. This is what everybody expected. This was the most unlikely what would come would be the most unlikely thing conceivable. He said it, but they didn't get it. Remember this throughout the week as we go toward Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Day on Sunday. Meditate on these things. Don't let this week be just like any other. Let it be a week of deep meditation and thought. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word sustains us. And it reveals truth and love that we cannot deny. And so let our hearts be changed forever, we pray. Amen. Amen.